Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby podcast. I feel like I did okay that time. Um, For those asking, that intro song and the outro is called Honey and Tea by a singer named Mosey. I found it when I was just looking through a licensing site and looked for just the most twee shit I could find. (laughs) No, I actually like the song, but um, I had never heard of it before I started using it. And I do get it stuck in my head for days after I record this, and that does make me resent it slightly. But anyway, moving on. Today, I'm going to be reading uh, newsletter number 19. It's called Mystery Calls. It should have hit your inbox on Sunday, and um, it's all about sensory perception and the mysterious worlds living underneath our skin, aka in our brains and bodies. This newsletter was actually a joy to write. I, um, I'm happy to be disproving my theory last week, which is that I always say it's really hard and painful. <laughs> I think it probably helped that it isn't a super personal essay. And like I mentioned last week, I was feeling a little overexposed on the internet. And so I think it was nice to realize that I could just write about something other than myself and um, still feel like I was connecting on a kind of emotional or intimate level. So that was a nice reminder. It also helped that I went to my brother's apartment to write this. Um, He's out of town and I've been driving to his place in Chinatown to take care of his plants. So I went and sort of used his place as a writer's retreat. I was there for a couple days by myself and I found the solitude really nice. It made me feel more connected with what I was exploring emotionally and I didn't have as many distractions so really grateful for the opportunity to do that okay let's get the fuck into it part one sensory perception have you ever thought about walking while you're doing it for some reason I attempted to this morning and was startled by how stubbornly subconscious the motion was even when I tried to observe the feeling of it of lifting my knees and swinging my legs it escaped me over and over My brain and body felt almost disconnected, numb, like when I smile after Novocaine. It made me think that if I lost the ability to walk and had to relearn, the motion would seem entirely alien to me. The idea that our sensory experience is complex and goes far beyond our awareness has been in my mind a lot lately. It started when I realized how important it is to see a mouth when it's speaking to you. I'm lucky to have my hearing, and as a result, never understood the importance of lip reading until everyone started wearing masks and I could no longer understand a word anyone said. Every conversation now ends with a two-person game of telephone, each of us asking the other to repeat themselves until one of us agrees to pretend we've got it. It's impressive to think that before all this, we were constantly studying each other's mouths when we spoke to one another, reconciling the shape of the lips with the sounds we were hearing, without recognizing we were doing it. This applies to so many experiences. Have you ever paid attention to your tongue while you're eating? It's chaos, squishing around every which way, widening and narrowing and cleaning your cheeks out as you chew. It's a near-fatal rhythm with your jaw, darting between your molars a millisecond before they would crush it into a bloody pulp. It's unbelievable what it's doing in there. 
And unless we make a mistake, which is rare, we never think about it at all. We just eat pizza and complain about something our boss said while our tongue is doing a performance of a fucking lifetime. It was the famous neurologist, philosopher, and writer Oliver Sacks who taught me that humans have far more senses than the classic five. Taste, smell, touch, hearing, and sight. There's our sense of temperature and balance. Our sense of time passing. We have a sense of where things are in our bodies without looking. Close your eyes and touch your nose. And where our bodies are in space. Earlier this year, I read a book by Sachs called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which explores some curious neurological cases he came across in his career. In it, he tells the story of a patient who lost her sense of proprioception, or where things are in her body. And I still think about it all the time. Part 2. The Disembodied Woman As Dr. Sachs told it, the patient, Christina, was due to have a minor surgery in a couple days when she had a dream that she completely lost control of her hands. It was so disturbing that she sought consult from Dr. Sachs, who consulted a psychiatrist, who said it was simply pre-op anxiety. But later that day, in an unbelievable twist, she did lose control of her hands, flailing them, dropping things, and generally feeling unsteady in her body. And the next day, she was worse. Quote, standing was impossible, Dr. Sachs wrote, unless she looked down at her feet. She could hold nothing in her hands, and they wandered, unless she kept an eye on them. When she reached out for something or tried to feed herself, her hands would miss or overshoot wildly, as if some essential control or coordination was gone. End quote. The surgery was canceled. Over the next days, her proprioception ceased to exist. Quote, she could scarcely even sit up, he wrote. Her body gave way. Her face was oddly expressionless and slack. Her jaw fell open. Even her vocal posture was gone. Something awful's happened, she mouthed in a ghostly flat voice. I can't feel my body. I feel weird, disembodied. After considering a number of possibilities and consulting many other experts, Dr. Sachs, top of his field, never figured out what happened to Christina. Her body, as she put it, had gone blind and deaf to itself. Dr. Sachs worked with her to relearn how to move using eyesight instead of proprioception, looking carefully at every part of her body as it moved. Within three weeks, she could sit up and move around, albeit awkwardly. Her face remained slack, her posture was stiff, and her voice, which now needed to be modulated by her own ear, took on a forced theatrical quality. Within a year, she left the hospital and returned to her family, having developed enough compensatory strategies to make up for her total loss of bodily awareness. It was a success story of a sort, but also a tragic one. She never regained what she lost, and her life became one of painstaking effort, with no one sharing her experience or remotely understanding it. She still feels her body's not hers. Quote, she has lost, with her sense of proprioception, the fundamental organic mooring of identity, Dr. Sachs wrote. Part 3. Invisible Orchestra Sachs is a polymath, a neurologist, science historian, philosopher, naturalist, and writer. And his books, at least the three that I've read, have a jaw-dropping way of making the world seem far more interconnected and yet mysterious than I typically think of it. In The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, there is actually a story of a man who mistook his wife for a hat. On his way out of the doctor's office, he reached for the top of his wife's head, thinking it was his hat. And while Dr. Sachs originally finds this patient's abstracted perception to be a little devastating, he ends up being charmed by the resulting pathology of the patient, who is unaware of his affliction. His art looks different, as if by losing one sense he gained another, and his life becomes orchestrated by music, his passion, rather than by visual cues. When I think of these stories, I'm reminded of the mystery of being alive. 
it's almost impossible to comprehend how much is going on in a seemingly simple moment. The bodily acuity required to snuggle into bed. The subconscious constricting of the throat and shaping of the mouth to tell someone how we feel. The panoply of senses required to perceive how they respond. It reminds me of the organized pandemonium of a busy New York sidewalk. People's bodies shifting almost imperceptibly when they pass each other so as to preserve the inertia of city life. A shoulder lifts. A step quickens. A torso twists. There's a subtle beauty to it that we barely notice. I like thinking about all this, especially during a time when our bodies seem to represent our collective weakness. There is so much more to us than our lack of antibodies or weekend plans. We're a shifting amoeba of senses, perceiving so much more than we consciously realize. The divine math of our physical spaces, the distance between us and the good spot on the couch, the way our friends' mouths change when they say they miss us. And who's to say there isn't so much more? Why does music make us want to dance? Why do my barely open curtains in the morning remind me of being 19? How did I never realize I loved the smell of outside until I stopped being able to enjoy it? In a historical moment consumed by diagnostic dread and structural inadequacy and unwieldy loss, it's nice to consider the invisible orchestra that's been there and will continue to be there as long as we're here to perform it. Okay. That's it for the written portion. Let's move on to 15 things I consumed this week. Number one is this week's small good thing, which is a TikTok by a user by the name of Quentin Ager. There's no way I could possibly do this TikTok justice. So if you're curious about what's been making me consistently laugh for days, then head to the written newsletter and watch this video. Number two is a beautiful essay by someone named Shruti Swami in the Paris Review. She wrote about what it means to have a sense of smell. And um, I actually found and read this after I wrote this week's newsletter, but it felt serendipitously relevant. I'm going to read a passage for you that I didn't put in the newsletter, but which you might enjoy. I bike with my daughter to Golden Gate Park. At the edge of an empty stretch of field, we get off the bike. She's running with joy as soon as her little feet touch the grass. She's not yet two and doesn't wear a mask. I have been huffing and sweating in mine, and my glasses are fogged. The sight of so many trees, so much green, relaxes my eyes. The piercing sight of this tree, who we have been visiting throughout quarantine, and whose exquisite hugeness, I realize, means that it's a very old tree. Right now, it is so clothed in spring's verdancy that it seems young, very young, and happy, and gentle, and wise. It is like seeing the face of a friend. Still, it is only when no one is within a 20-foot radius and I slip off my mask that tears prick my eyes. The part comes rushing into me. The smell of cut grass, of my own sweat in my cotton t-shirt, the alcohol of my sanitized hands, sun on leaf, damp air lanced with spears of light, sweet, wet earth. All at once, the world is alive in me, and I am alive again in the world. In this essay, Swami talks about how hard it is to describe smells, but I feel like she did such a good job. And um, obviously, I mentioned this in my story, but taking a mask off outside is makes you realize how important um, 
smell is to the lived experience and how much it's informing how you feel about a certain moment and where you are and what time of day it is and what the weather is and things like that. So um, one other thing that really resonated with me in this essay is um, she talks about how sometimes she loses her words, which is her way of kind of explaining what it means to feel disconnected from the inside of her head. And I know the feeling. There are times when I realize I haven't felt like myself in a really long time. And I only realize that when I have a moment where I do really feel like myself. And feeling like yourself is kind of a wishy-washy way of explaining it. But I like the way that she um, put it, which is that sometimes she loses her words and loses access to the part of her that's kind of engaged with and, and observing her life. And it was nice to realize I'm not alone in feeling like that sometimes. Okay, number three is the troublingly long nasal swab administered to test whether I have COVID. I don't have any symptoms, but I went to get tested post-traveling just to make sure. And I had heard that it was kind of uncomfortable. And then I'd heard on Twitter that some people were exaggerating it and it was no big deal. And others were saying it was. And I was not ready to have my brain tickled. It was bad. <laughs> I don't want to discourage anyone from getting a COVID test. You should definitely get it test, get yourself tested. Um, I haven't gotten the results yet, but I'm eagerly awaiting them and I'm sure they're going to be negative, but it will be nice to know officially. But I was definitely haunted by that experience. And afterward, I felt like it was still there. I had like a phantom swab. I thought it was just like a Q-tip in the nose, but it actually goes up so much further than you realized your nasal passage went. So anyway, not to scar you, definitely get tested and just brace yourself for a genuinely unique experience. Okay, number four, an enthralling and graphic explanation of how germ particles move around a New York subway car. This is one of those special New York Times stories where they have uh, moving graphics as you scroll, and it's genuinely helpful and made me feel less nervous about riding the subway. It's not something I've done yet since before all of this. It's so weird. I haven't ridden the subway in like six months, um, but I kind of miss it, even though I was always complaining about it before. And I look forward to the first time I take a ride. It will probably not be for another couple months, but um, I'm counting the days. Number five is a 1984 interview in the Paris Review with James Baldwin. It's about his relationship with writing. I love reading these Paris Review interviews with writers and other artists. They're always so well done and thoughtful and they're long reads, which I really appreciate. Um, and in this one, Baldwin is just really thoughtful. He he takes every question really seriously and he considers them authentically and answers really honestly. It made me realize that a lot of um, interviews I read before are kind of a predictable style of banter where you can tell that the interviewee may have expected the question or prepared for how to answer it. So it was nice to see, uh, read an interview that felt genuinely in the moment and not really um, pre-cooked. One other thing I want to say about this interview is a particular line that Baldwin gave that I've been thinking about a lot and Avi and I have been talking about a lot, which is the following, quote, talent is insignificant. I know a lot of talented ruins. Beyond talent lie all the usual words, discipline, love, luck, but most of all, endurance. 
Endurance is a pretty unromantic word when it comes to the creative process, but I actually think it's one of the most important. And it was nice to be reminded by, um, you know, a literary genius. Um, so I've been keeping that in mind as I write and as Avi does other creative projects in the house that your kind of desire and skill and talent can only get you so far. And after that, you need to basically endure the sort of pain and hardship of continuing on past the part that's really fun and energetic in the beginning. Number six is a deep dive into Jenny Holzer's incredible artwork, especially her 1983 lithograph called Abuse of Power Comes as No Surprise. And I'm just going to read a couple of the lines from this um, artwork, which is kind of a poster. She was known for basically doing street art, which was putting her expressions and what she called truisms around New York in a way that was kind of arresting and surprising. So some of the lines on the lithograph are, Abusive power comes as no surprise. Anger or hate can be a useful motivating force. Any surplus is immoral. Inheritance must be abolished. Killing is unavoidable, but is nothing to be proud of. Labor is a life-destroying activity. Most people are not fit to rule themselves. People are nuts if they think they can control their lives. Romantic love was invented to manipulate women. If you find those compelling, you should check out some of her work. Number seven is a DM I got after I Instagrammed one of Jenny Holzer's truisms about tenderness, which was, it is in your self-interest to find a way to be very tender. Um, the person DM me and said they've been thinking a lot about tenderness and particularly its dual definition, which is one, gentleness and caring, and two, sensitivity to pain. I really appreciated that sort of duality as it's something I see in myself and it's easy to forget that they're connected and think that you can be gentle and also thick-skinned. Um, maybe that's true. It's just not a balance I've figured out. And so it's nice to think of my sensitivity as a sort of necessary counterpart to my gentle nature. Number eight is one push notification from Spotify that I'm apparently a, quote, day one fan of Drake. And to that, I have no comment. Number nine is a dress by Sonia Carrasco. I didn't get it personally, but I just admired it online. It's the kind of thing that I would buy if I were a different person with different things to do or anything to do. So it was fun to, you know, just pretend for a moment. Okay, number 10. It's an essay by Natasha Stagg in Spike Art Magazine about theater and New York and the metaphor of show business. I tend to make fun of how many movies there are about show business, but I appreciated her point that they can be a metaphor for broader life themes. And it made me want to watch the movie New York, New York, which I've never seen, but which this essay is about and describes in a way that made me want to watch it really badly. Natasha Stagg is a kind of casual and brilliant writer, and I really admire her prose and style. So this was an immediate read for me. Number 11 is an Instagram account called the Shirley Temple King. Not sure if you've heard of it, but it's a seven-year-old who reviews Shirley Temples from various restaurants and might be the best argument for procreation I've ever witnessed. 
Number 12 is the Netflix show Love on the Spectrum. It's a reality show about dating for people with autism or on the autism spectrum. And I only intended to watch it for like five minutes and ended up watching the entire season. It's pretty short, but still. And um, I kind of feared it would be exploitive. And I do kind of want to read some more about the show through the eyes of someone who has ASD. But um, from my perspective, it didn't end up feeling exploitive to me. And I walked away with a deeper and more compassionate understanding of autism spectrum disorder. And in that way, I thought it was successful. Um, So if you don't know much about autism and are curious, I think the show does a really great job of introducing it. Number 13 is a screenshot of two tweets by a climate account I follow on Instagram called Future Earth. It points out the irresponsibility of highlighting individual choice over corporate malpractice when it comes to climate disaster or impending climate disaster. Um, The original tweet is by CNN and it says, scared by that new report on climate change? Here's what you can do to help. Eat less meat. Swap your car or plane ride for a bus or train. Use a smart thermostat in your home and upgrade to more efficient appliances. And then the follow-up tweet by Adam Johnson, who is the host of Citations Needed, which is a a media criticism podcast, says, Reminder that 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and presenting the crisis as a moral failing on the part of individuals without noting this fact is journalistic malpractice. When I originally posted this on my Instagram story, I got some DMs from people saying that they felt that when we de-emphasize individual choices as Adam did in this tweet, it was just an excuse to not personally participate and that actually we needed individuals and corporations to um, work to improve the climate uh, crisis. And um, it's not that I think that's completely wrong. It's that the point that I think this tweet is making or the way I took it is that the continued emphasis on the individual is actually ultimately a scapegoat or a distraction from um, the basically corporate malpractice that's happening on a massive level. And um, in my opinion, it's a false equivalency to act as if both are equally responsible or to even imply that we have complete control over our consumption choices when a lot of people don't have the time, energy, or resources, or even the availability to seek out more ethical consumption choices. Um, So I think that ultimately it's great if individuals take it on themselves to be more climate conscious, but ultimately I think it's really up to policymakers and those in office to hold corporations to account and in doing so give consumers better options. Number 14 is half of The Last Dance, which is the Michael Jordan documentary series everyone was talking about three months ago, which I definitely intend to finish as I apparently now care deeply about the 1978 to 1998, wait, no, 1997, I guess I don't care that much, 1997 to 1998 season of the Chicago Bulls. I didn't think I'd care that much about this show and I do have my critiques of it and also just generally the very American mindset that undergirds it, but it is really well done and they 
narrativize this whole story in such a gripping way, and I can't wait to finish it. Also, I love Scotty Pippen. Number 15 is the downright delightful knowledge that in LA, apparently they call wash and fold fluff and fold, which I will be using henceforth. Okay, that's it for this week. Um, If you'd like to leave a comment, you can pop into the email that I sent this in, or you can reply to one of my newsletters. Um, Also, a portion of your subscription this month is going to be split between the OCA Project, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, and the Black Trans Travel Fund, which are three organizations that honor, protect, and advocate for Black trans lives. So thank you so much for subscribing and for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.